2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 7, Paul writes to Timothy and says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and a sound mind. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Last week, Jonathan reminded you that this letter was written by Paul to Timothy in the closing months, perhaps even weeks of the apostle's life. Paul finds himself in deep difficulty. He's in a Roman prison. For all intents and purposes, he's virtually alone. We know that from the end of this book in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, where he says, only Luke is with me. In the fourth chapter, Paul has made his first defense before the Roman court. And he said, no one stood with me. Everyone has forsaken me in chapter 4, verse 16. So you can imagine that opportunities to witness have been restricted. Paul anticipates that he will soon be executed in chapter 4, verse 16. And so this letter has been called by many Paul's last will and testament. And so Paul is going to lay out charges, commands, instructions of what constitutes essential conduct of the minister, of the man, the woman who loves the Lord Jesus and who loves the gospel. The letter is a constant call to persevere in times of testing, to expect future problems, to endure in future opposition, persecution, difficulty. Chuck Swindoll summarized this section in three words, strengthen your resolve. I think we could even summarize it in two words, fortify faith. Maybe we could even do it in one word, persevere. Someone defined perseverance as, by perseverance, the snail made its way into the ark. 
it's going to be just a little bit of a time. Your progress may seem slow. The path might seem difficult. But Paul is reminding Timothy that you must go forward. Paul has run the race. The finishing line is coming up soon. And so the theme of this book is holding on to truth. Holding on to Jesus. Holding on to faith in times of conflict and suffering and doctrinal declension. Some of the churches in Asia had already defected from the gospel of grace and had sadly lapsed either into license, that means I can do whatever I want, or legalism, that is, I have to do certain things in order to make God happy. Both, sadly, are ditches which are easy to fall into. But God hasn't called you to license or legalism. He's called you by grace through faith. He's called you to live a life of love and freedom. And so, again, this book is about holding on when others are letting go. The word apostasy has fallen out of favor in Christian conversation. It's a word that describes people who've given up, who've given in, who abandon biblical Christianity. They face hardship, they face suffering, they face conflict, they face a spouse who has left them or an illness that's of, of what seems like a terminal disease. Whether it's hardship or suffering or conflict or doctrinal confusion. And yet Jesus Christ really is the Lord. Just like Peter said so long ago when asked by Jesus, are you going to leave me? And he said, where else can we go? Only you have the words of life. There is no second option for forgiveness of sin and the cleansing of heart and the reality of going to heaven. What were some of the problems that Timothy faced? It would seem that he had to deal with constant opposition from false leaders. There was constant opposition from the message of the gospel. There was criticism of his youth. Remember in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, there was a growing criticism of his relationship with Paul. It was guilt by association. You mean you're a follower of Paul? You're, you've been discipled by, by Paul, that person who's now in a Roman prison? You know, there's a reason why people are in jail. Paul said to Timothy in verse 6, Stir up the gift. Keep the fire ignited. 
What was that spiritual gift? It may be the gospel itself. It may be the spiritual gifts given by God's Holy Spirit for effective ministry. But in order to deal with the opposition, the criticism and the difficulty, he's already laying out the resources. Do you want to stay the course? Do you want to remain faithful to God? Then guess what? Stir up what Jesus has given you inside of your heart. That fire ignited must be stirred. The flame must be guarded and kept. Zeal fuels the gifted minister. And so the Christian must exercise their gift in the world. And part of the difficulty that you're going to face is God has called you. He has gifted you. And there is going to be continual opposition for you to lay that gift aside. Paul said, stir up the gift. We have to stir it up like low, slow, burning embers. That word that that Jonathan described in verse 6 as he was teaching you is, is a long Greek word, Anna, which means up. And again, zoe, life, pyre, fire, to keep the fire burning or blazing. We must not fear in verse 7. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of sound mind. We aren't to be ashamed of the gospel in verse 8. We have to share in the sufferings of the gospel in verses 8 through 10. We must be willing to take courage and strengthen our resolve from the example of godly men and women who have gone before us. Paul says, Think about me and my example in verses 11 and 12. So we begin by saying, do not fear in verse 7. Look what it says. For God hasn't called us to, to, uh, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of, of a sound mind. I want you to connect the dots in the passage. Paul says, stir up the gift. Use the gift that God has given you that was acknowledged by Paul by the laying on of hands. That's what the laying on of hands means. It means not only are you called and gifted, but I recognize your gift. And the church recognizes your gift. You see, one of the ways that you know, I tell people concerning Jonathan and Carolyn, it's not nepotism when you're really gifted. It's not nepotism when you sing like an angel. It's your gift is going to be acknowledged in the, in the very real things that you do. Do you have a gift of encouragement? Well, guess what? People are going to be encouraged when they're around you. Do you have a gift of discerning of spirits? Then guess what? Recognition is going to take place all around you as, as you exercise their gift, your gift and people are benefited from it. And so evangelism and teaching are the tools that God uses to save the sinner and mature the saint. So how do we fortify faith? How do we persevere in a hostile environment? We first of all remember our spiritual calling and second of all we remember our spiritual condition. God isn't the source or the author of fear. When we are attempted To be afraid of what people think or what people want. In all honesty, 
We all admit moments of fear. But just like there are three Greek words for love in the New Testament, there are three Greek nouns that translate that word fear in the New Testament. This word is found only here in our text, in verse 7. The word is delia. The most frequent used word in the New Testament for fear is phobos. It's word used 47 times. And eulobia which is used twice in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, and chapter 12, verse 28. Trench points out the difference. Delia is always used here, and only here, but it's always used in the, in the ancient world of the Greeks to de describe something that's bad or negative. Phobos is a middle term. It can mean either a healthy fear or an unhealthy fear, depending on the context. There's a reason why you should be afraid when you cross the road. You look to the left and you look to the right. Guess what? The traffic can hurt you. When you hear the rattlesnakes rattle, there should be something inside of you that says, I need to be careful. There's an appropriate and a healthy fear. But then there's the kind of fear that is unhealthy. The word godly fear translates the other word in the Hebrew citations. So the word Paul uses here is the kind of word that means timidity. I think it would be even appropriate to translate this cowardice. This is the kind of fear that doesn't come from God. This is the kind of fear that isn't healthy. Cowardice is not a fruit of the Spirit. There are repeated instructions in the Bible. Do not be afraid of the face of man. Do not be afraid of the trial. Do not be afraid of ridicule. Do not be afraid of persecution. But sometimes that's exactly what we're afraid of. We're exactly afraid of what will my husband, what will my wife, what will my neighbors, what will my friends, what will the people at work, what will the people at school think if they discover that I'm a Christian? Well, they may think, wait a minute, you're a Christian? Even when you were an unbeliever, did you have the expectation that those people who self-identified as Christians would act like Christians, that they would talk like Christians, that they would walk like Christians? Did you have an expectation of, hey, wait a minute, I thought you were a Christian? Hey, you know what? If people find out I'm a Christian, they may want me to act like one. They may, may, may want me to walk like one and talk like one and behave like one. And so, Paul is basically reminding Timothy that we're not to be afraid of mockery and criticism and opposition and abuse because that's exactly what was happening. We have to be careful not to accuse, uh, confuse aggressiveness with power and love and a sound mind. Paul isn't saying to Timothy, be aggressive. That's not what he's saying. The source of submission, the antidote to cowardice 
oddly enough, isn't bravery. It's submission and humility. That might shock you and surprise you. What are you saying? It isn't just about a courageous commitment. It's a submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ and the revelation of God where you say, no, according to the Bible, Jesus really is Lord. He really does save people. He really did rise from the dead. I'm going to suggest to you that the power that Paul is talking about is given the moment that you decide against cowardice and decide for submission and courage. The powerful Holy Spirit then imparts power and love. That word power, dunamis or dynamis, can I think here means the supernatural ability to do the will of God. Do you understand what I just said? The supernatural ability to do the will of God. What does God want me to do? He wants you to honor him. Submit to him. Believe him. Trust him. The powerful Holy Spirit imparts the power and the love. And this is not ordinary love. This is that agape. This is the love that loves people when they're enemies. It's the kind of love that's not controlled by emotion, but rather it is controlled by the mind and by the will. This is love in resolution. This is the love that a mother has for her children when when the child says, I hate you. And the mother goes, I know you've forgotten all about the fact that I bore you and that I feed you and that I have taken care of you. I know you've forgotten all of that and you can say what you want and go ahead, say it. Okay, mom, you're fired. (laughs) Oh, really? Really? This is the kind of love that says, no matter what the opposition or the animus or the difficulty, I'm going forward in my God-assigned duty. I'm your mother. I'm your father. I'm your brother. I'm your sister. I'm your pastor. I'm your friend. This is the kind of love that's demonstrated in the presence of ridicule. In the presence of abuse. This is the love that's exercised in the presence of ill treatment. This is the love that exercises care to sinners who happen to be the enemies of God. This is the kind of love that says, I'm going to do what's in your best interest, even though you don't even know what is in your best interest. It's in your best interest. To hear the truth and to hold on to the truth. Now, I want you to think about this. The next time a person invites you to let go of your faith, to let go of your love, to let go of the hope, God's love is available to everyone. 
fallen human beings can't exercise this kind of love. This is God's love. This is why Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you love one another. And by this will all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another in John 13, 34. Galatians 5, 22, but the fruit of the spirit is love, which is manifest in joy and peace and long suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness. And the Bible says, And there's no law against that. There's no law that says, no, you can't do this. There's no prohibition for this kind of commitment. And so what does Paul mean when he uses the term sound mind? This is an interesting Greek word. It means, I'm going to suggest to you, it means the ability to control your emotion, to control your feelings, to direct your thoughts. This is the sound mind that is present in the time of trial, in the time of difficulty, dare I say, in the time of threat. This is sound thinking. This is reasonable thinking. This is rational thinking. But I want you to understand the context. This is the reasonable thinking that reflects the heart and the character of God. Albert Einstein famously said, I want to think God's thoughts after him. This is what Paul has in mind when he talks about put on the mind of Christ. This is the immediate default where, you, where you're thinking something and then you say to yourself, what would Jesus think about this? How would Jesus respond? <laughs> during, the, during the, I think it was the 80s or the 90s, there was a big fad of WWJD. They would wear bracelets. It's WWJD. I think I had one on and my dad looks at it and goes, well, what's that? WWJD. Who wants Jack Daniels? <laughs> no, no, dad. That's not what it means. It means what would Jesus do? Sometimes that's exactly what's being talked here about having the mind, a sound mind. I think that there's a human will to power and to love and to reason. But the power and love and self-control that Paul is talking about is the supernatural enabling by the Holy Spirit which imparts to you the mind of Christ and immediately there's a voice inside of your head that says, what does the Bible have to say about this? What reflects the character of God in this? How in the world are we going to face the trial, endure the hardship, deal with the suffering when you are overwhelmed? You're by yourself in the hospital bed. You pull the covers up over your head at night. You're still struggling with the emotional and relational debris that comes from people who have abandoned you or betrayed you. But it's the Spirit that gives power. 
love and self-control. Actually, one translation translates this passage, God's spirit doesn't make cowards of us. The spirit gives us power, love, and self-control. In Joshua chapter 1 verse 9, the Lord says to Joshua, Have I not commanded thee, be strong and of good courage, be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee wherever he, you go. I used to think, well, that must mean if I go to Littleton, Colorado, God will be with me. If I go to Longmont, he'll be with me. If I go to Colorado Springs, he'll be with me. But I think it means way more than a geographical location. He's going to be with you in the dark place, in the empty place, in the difficult place. He's going to be with you when you think no one else is with you. Francis Roberts writes, quote, The coward seeks release from pressure. The courageous pray for strength, unquote. George Swinnick wrote, quote, He that would not die when he must, and he that would die when he must not, both are cowards alike, unquote. There is a time in our life where the acceptable thing to do is to go, I'm standing up for Jesus. You realize what the consequences are going to be. You mean that person may not like me anymore? You may mean this person may walk out of the relationship? You mean that I could lose my job? I could lose my livelihood? Persevere in power. Persevere in love. Persevere in godly reason. Now Paul adds to the list, don't be ashamed of the gospel. And please, don't be ashamed of me. We could put this another way. Don't be ashamed of the gospel and don't be ashamed of the people who believe the gospel. And so he says, don't be afraid. Look at verse 8. Don't be ashamed. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, endurance, perseverance, requires a resolute commitment to what God says about reality. When Paul writes, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, this is God's testimony about Christ. But it's also Christ's testimony about God. It's God's testimony saying, I sent my son. It's the son's testimony saying, my father sent me. Remember, I've told you repeatedly in Bible studies over decades that in order to, to be a good witness, you have to have a knowledge of the facts. You have to have a reputation for honesty. You have to be willing to tell the truth. And so testimony means a willingness to talk about what you know to be true. It's the testimony of God in Christ concerning the human condition. It's the testimony of God in Christ concerning the problem of sin. 
And so we identify with Jesus and we identify with the gospel. We identify with the Bible says about any given subject. The Lord Jesus told his disciples, quote, in John chapter 15, verse 18 through 20, if the world hates you, know this, that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but because I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you the next time that you say why do they hate me you know unlike Jesus we're capable of being jerks Amen. sometimes we do hateful things we participate in hateful behavior Jesus didn't Jesus did what was right every single time. He held on to the truth every single time. The revelation every single time. Over and over again in the New Testament, you'll hear the repeated words. If I said this, Jesus said, then I would be a liar just like you. I would be participating in evil just like you. Jesus said, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Later in this letter, Paul reminds Timothy in chapter 3, verse 12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And some people can read that text and say, then I won't. I won't desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. That way, nothing bad ever has to happen to me. I'm going to take the drink. I'm going to participate in the drugs. I'm going to involve myself in the lifestyle. And so the pressure's on. Paul is not in jail because he stole from the church. Paul is not in jail because he ran away with the church secretary. Paul is not in jail because he does something weird or wicked. You know what? If a pastor goes to jail because he's done a crime, then that's on him. There's a big difference between going to jail because you did what was right versus you did what was wrong. Paul is in jail because he's a threat. And do you know why he's a threat to the Roman Empire? Because he is persistent in his willingness to tell the truth about the human condition and the solution that's in Christ. Paul could have avoided jail. Stop preaching the gospel. Don't live for Christ. Shut your mouth. Walk away. But Paul says, no, we live for God in Christ. Jesus saved us from our sin. 
It's Jesus who gave us this holy calling. It's Jesus who saved us by grace. It's Jesus who saved us freely. The gifts and the callings of Christ were given to Timothy. And the gifts and callings of Christ have been given to you. The Lord gave Timothy a provision of power and love and self-control by the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that God is willing to give you these exact same resources so that you can hold on instead of letting go. So you can hold on to faith instead of let go. You can hold on to truth instead of letting go. You can hold on to Jesus instead of letting go. And so Paul says, Oh, by the way, don't be afraid, but also be prepared to share in the sufferings of the gospel. Look what it says at the end of verse 8, but share with me, share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. What a wonderful statement, before time began. When does time even begin? Well, in order for time to exist, you have to have a planet and it has to be rotating on its axis. There has to be motion and direction. And so sometime before the presence of the universe in which you are living in at this very moment, before time began, God loved you with an everlasting love. He saw your circumstance. He saw your sin and your heart and your life. And he purposed to save you. Look what it says. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. How do we endure suffering and persevere in our faith? We stir up the gift of God in verse 6. We abandon cowardice in verse 7. We refuse to be ashamed of the gospel in verse 8. And now Paul says, in what seems like a huge risk, Timothy, I want you to take a big risk. I want you to share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. What? What? What are you saying? What are you asking me? Really? What does this mean? What exactly is it that Paul is asking me to do? What is he asking me to sign up for? Timothy is living in a time of ever-increasing hostility and animosity towards Christ and Christians. The message of the gospel 
is a real threat to the pagan practices of the ancient world. And the lifestyle that God calls you to is a definite threat to the culture in which you live in. The moment you say, I think there's such a thing as truth, the culture says, no, truth is whatever you want it to be. The moment you say, I think that some things are harmful, (laughs) there are people who will say, you know what? Do whatever you want. There's no long-term effects. There's no such thing as heaven. Or if there is such a thing as heaven, everybody's going there. And clearly, there can't be such a thing as hell. The message of Jesus is a threat. Some saw Paul's arrest and impending execution as a judgment by God against the primitive Jesus movement. Some thought that Paul deserved to be in jail. Some thought that Christianity was a lie, a big fat lie, a superstition, a story that was fabricated in order to keep people from doing what they really want. And there are people who will say that. You're just no fun. And we should be willing to concede. I absolutely agree with you that sin is pleasurable for a season. I I understand that tequila shots can be comforting. I understand that if I do this or do that, it might be fun for a season. But make no mistake about it. There's a judgment and consequences. It's in that context. It's in the context of determined opposition, persistent doubt, that Paul urges Timothy, remain true to your calling. Be strong, be courageous, be bold, be certain as to Christ. Be certain about Jesus, be certain about the gospel. Yes, 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 Paul is in a Roman prison, but he isn't a prisoner. Look what the text says, he's God's prisoner. Do you understand Paul's perspective? He's saying, look, I am here for reasons that I don't always understand, but it is Jesus who has placed me here. No wonder Paul invites Timothy to share in his suffering. Paul invites Timothy to anticipate and expect suffering, and that's exactly the advice that I need to be able to give to you anticipate and expect suffering, expect hostility, expect difficulty, expect that there's going to be a problem. Paul invites Timothy to anticipate it. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 23, the writer of Hebrews says, know that our brother Timothy has been set free with whom I shall see you If he comes shortly, unquote, that passage in Hebrews 13, 23 reminds us that what Paul says came true. You could go to jail just as well, is what he's saying. 
So some people will ask the scholastic question, did the writer of Hebrews write this before or after 2 Timothy, whether it takes place before or after, the point is that bad things happen to Timothy, difficult things. The believer isn't limited by his or her own willpower and strength. And sometimes you might be thinking, I don't have enough strength or power or willingness to go through this by myself. And you're exactly right. That's why Jesus comes and Jesus shows up and the reality of Jesus is going to bring you power. Strength, the ability to go forward. Paul mentions his suffering according to the power of God in verse 8. Then he briefly summarizes some of the most important points of the gospel in the life of the believer in verses 9 through 10. Look what he says. He saved us in verse 9. This is both the heart and the soul of the gospel. In verse 9 when he says, but he has saved us. And called us, in verse 9, with a holy calling. I want to pause for a moment and just remind you of something. There is no gospel apart from the death of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus. There's no gospel unless human beings are recalcitrant sinners by nature and choice. There is no gospel unless something is terribly wrong with me and you. And that only Jesus can solve that problem. But this is an unwelcome message. Jesus has made sin so that we can be saved. Salvation serves as both a reminder, listen carefully, and a motivator to endure. To endure. It's funny to me how quickly women... Forget the pain of giving birth. And they experience the joy of having the presence of their child. And they say, this is my child. Don't you remember the pain? This is my child. Don't you remember the heartache? This is my child. Don't you remember the heartache, the headache, and the difficulties, and the inconsistencies? This is my child. And so moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas will suffer indignity, hostility, in order to go forward with their children. Salvation serves as a reminder and a motivator. He called us with a holy calling. And if that were all, if that were the only reason, if that were the, if that were, that's a sufficient reason to renounce cowardice and embarrassment. He saved us. He called us. He has a plan and a purpose for us. But that isn't the only thing that God gives. Salvation and calling rely exclusively on the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus. 
our works are simply a manifestation of the presence of Jesus in our heart. Our salvation and holiness or Christian living can only occur through the planned purpose, the amazing and sufficient grace. One Bible writer says, we neither created the opportunity nor the possibility for our salvation. God graciously allows us simply to respond to his plan, unquote. Give up on Jesus. I can't. Why not? He saved me. What if it's all in your mind? It's not. He called me. You're hearing voices. You're schizophrenic. You're mentally ill. No, I have a sound mind. And then Paul says... Learn from my example, verse 11, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. In that simple passage, Paul reminds Timothy of the profound sense, not only of his appointment and call by Jesus, the calling kept Paul focused in the presence of hardship and suffering. I want you to think about what's happening. He doesn't say, I used to be a preacher. I used to be an apostle. I used to be a teacher. Now I'm in jail. In the midst of the pain and the problem and the heartache, his calling never left him. Paul's calling as a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles was the source of suspicion and animosity from the religious Jews, from the skeptical Gentiles, from the permanent hatred from the host of hell. And so they would say, you're not appointed a preacher. You're not appointed an apostle. You're not a teacher of the Gentiles. But Paul says, it's not true. I know exactly who I am and what God has called me to do. What exactly does a preacher do? So many pastors that I've heard time and time again, sitting on an airplane, if they turn to the person, when someone says, oh, tell me, what is it that you do? I'm a teacher. Because the moment you open your mouth and you say, I'm a preacher... People roll their eyes. They roll their eyes. Watch this. I don't know if you can see my eyes, but I'm going to roll them. Rolling my eyes. All the word means is announce or proclaim. Paul is basically saying, God called me to make an announcement. You don't have to go to hell. You can go to heaven. Your sins can be forgiven. You can experience grace and mercy and forgiveness. It can happen. The emptiness inside of you, it can be filled. The hurt and the pain inside of you, it can be remedied in the fact that the that the gospel is true. And it's interesting to me that he puts preacher first. He doesn't put apostle first. Paul places the preacher first. The title apostle is way more grand. But the preacher has little or no importance apart from his or her message. You're not more important than your message. Particularly if your message is God loves you. Jesus loves you. Salvation is available to you. Paul's practice 
was to proclaim the message. And by the way, he does it to an emperor. He does it to a king. He does it to governors. He does it to important people. He does it to less important people. He does it to familiar people. He does it to complete strangers. This is why I know that Billy Graham and my friend Franklin Graham are really preachers. Franklin Graham, wherever he goes, if he's on, on the Tonight Show, if he's in some celebrity circle, they'll say, hey, what about those Broncos? And Franklin will go, I, like you, I hope that they win, but guess what? The real winner is those who accept Christ as their Savior. <laughs> it doesn't matter who he's talking to or what he's talking about. He's going to direct the conversation to the condition of the person and their heart circumstances. Paul is an apostle. He's called and commissioned by the resurrected Jesus. The first title has to do with his message, but the second title has to do with his authority in delivering that message. Paul's a teacher, a preacher, and an apostle. And the very fact that Paul is a teacher, Timothy serves as the proof of his ministry. I wouldn't normally be so bold as to say this about myself. But Jonathan, in part, is proof of my ministry. I really am a preacher and a teacher. Do you know how you know you're a teacher? People will be taught. Do you know how you know you're an evangelist? Well, guess what? People will be saved. Do you know how you know whatever it is that God has called you to do? There's going to be a manifestation of the fruit in what you do. Paul has no doubts concerning his identity in Jesus, his calling from Jesus, and his future with Jesus. Again, one Bible teacher says, quote, Paul knew he had put his confidence in the right person. He knew that he had given his life for the right cause. He was not ashamed. A lifetime of experiences with the Lord, joy and sorrow, pain and frustration, persecution and prayer, ministry and guidance, sustenance had taught Paul about God in whom he believed. Faith is trust in a reliable source. Have you placed your confidence in the right person? Have you given your life to the right cause? How will you face hardship and pain and suffering and abuse? With cowardice or with courage? Paul invites Timothy, stir up the gift in verse 6. Invite Jesus to impart power, courage, and a sound mind in verse 7. Incite God's pleasure. What's the opposite of being ashamed? Let's pause for a moment. What is the opposite of being ashamed? It's being pleased. It's being pleased. 
Sometimes we're ashamed of our team when they lose. And we're pleased when they win. When are we most likely to be ashamed of the gospel? It's when we're not pleased with God. But your concern shouldn't be whether or not you're pleased with him. Your concern should be whether or not he's pleased with you. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you want to know why? Because God is pleased with Jesus. Not with me. He's pleased with Jesus in me. He's pleased with the life of Jesus and the message of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and the words of Jesus. And so what's the other thing? Secure in verse 8. In order to avoid being ashamed of the gospel, I have to be pleased with God and Christ. That means I have to be satisfied with everything that God has done. I have to be satisfied with everything that Jesus has done. And this is why Paul can with confidence say, I have been given everything. I've been given everything that I need in Christ Jesus the Lord. The Bible does not encourage needless suffering. You don't have to look for it. You don't have to look for hardship and you don't have to look for pain. It will find you. So what do we do? We commit our souls to God in the presence of suffering. We don't try to understand every reason for every pain and problem. We pray. We weigh our current circumstances in light of the eternal glory that one day we will experience. We ignite but then we imitate who? Well, we imitate Christ. And then Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We imitate godly saints and soldiers who in every generation stand firm. Do you want to be inspired? Then look at the people who have said, Yes, instead of no. Look at the people who, instead of abandoning the truth, have held on to the truth. Look at the people who said, in spite of pain, in spite of suffering, in spite of hardship and difficulty, I am going to trust Jesus. Our enemies may have a strong arm and a firm grip and a hard hammer. But we're anvils. We are anvils. We're not composed of simply forged and hardened steel. We're forged from the fire of affliction. We're hardened by the Spirit's power, love, and a sound mind. And we patiently await the blows, knowing that even the strongest blacksmith with the heaviest hammer is going to eventually break under the simplicity and the submission of the anvil. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we're learning how to walk forward into the future that God has planned for us. 
We have so many people that we love and so many people that we care about. We have so many people who are letting go. Lord, we pray that we would hold on. Lord, we pray that we would find a way to help people who are struggling, who are tempted to let go, to hold on to faith, to hold on to love, to hold on to hope, to hold on to Jesus. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would invite everyone listening within the sound of my voice to be encouraged, to hold on, to remind themselves of the Savior that they love who saved them and called them, gifted them and placed them in the circumstance and that, Lord, we would walk forward with confidence, not in us, but in Jesus. And so, Lord, we commit that to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.